Well, good afternoon. It's afternoon where I'm at. And I thought long and hard yesterday about what I could read for us today. And I've decided to take a chance and read a scholastic book. Again, I don't have um, publisher's rights to share this story. So kind of taking a risk, living dangerously. If, um, if this is a problem, again, I have really no issue in removing this podcast that I'm creating um, from distribution. Right? I understand the rights of writers and the need for them to have control of their work. So I, I do not own the story or the characters. I'm simply sharing the story right now while we are in quarantine. <laughs> I'm kind of all trapped at home. My idea being that this is a scholastic book. This is a book that a young adult could read or would read. We did buy this book at a book fair. And um, I'm just kind of hoping to share it. So again, if this is a problem, I'll be happy to remove this actual reading. But I hope it's not because this looks like a pretty fun read. And it might be a fun listen as well. So let me tell you about this book. Well, first I'll tell you a little bit about my day because I know you're also interested, but this morning I, I woke up thinking I would be so productive, but I woke up so late today and, you know, I got kind of like my housework done a little bit. Um, I'm a mom. I have two, two boys. One is napping. The other one right now is video gaming. My husband is probably watching YouTube videos downstairs. And we are still kind of on self-isolation with, with everything going on. Probably you are too, excuse me, if you are listening to this recording. And, you know, so we're just staying busy. I am upstairs in my, what I call my reading window in my bedroom. I have this window that looks out onto the front street outside of my house. And I can kind of see everything going on. Um, it's a busy road in front of my house and I'm really surprised at the number of people that are out and about when we're all supposed to be kind of at home self-isolating. Um, that is a little concerning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really hoping these people are really needing to be out and you know that they're being careful and safe because the self-isolation thing, this virus thing, is no, it's no joke. Um, so enough of that. I made cookies this morning for my kids, made them from scratch. I hadn't done that since they were really little, so I made like 40 snickerdoodles. The recipe made a lot of cookies, so we're going to have a lot of cookies for a while, and or at least until they get devoured. And they are on my on my kitchen stove downstairs cooling they're on a platter and they're waiting for my boys so that'll be a surprise for them if they haven't found them already and yeah I picked up my house and I did some laundry I'm washing all of our blankets and bedding I like to do that once a week keep everything smelling fresh and nice had a nice long bubble bath and then was thinking about what I would read and I'm kind of going through my own personal library of, of books I've collected, which I'm one of those people that I'll go and I'll buy tons of books, waiting for the perfect moment to read them. And so these are books I've bought over the years, and now's the perfect time to read them. So I'm sharing them with you too. So this book that I'm about to share is called Into the Killing Seas. It is written by... Michael P. Spradling, which I believe I've read a few of his other books, and I really like his writing style. So I hope you do too. The cover of the book that I have has a picture of two, like preteen or kind of like tween boys, and they're kind of like in castaway clothing, and they're on a raft, and there's a man on the raft with them. He looks like he's kind of out of it. He's laying on the raft, but these two little boys are sitting up, or young young boys, young men. Underneath the raft is a picture of a big, scary shark, and it looks like, you know, he's ready to eat them. And there's other sharks swimming around them, and there's debris in the water, so, you know, they are very much on a raft surrounded by sharks. So that's the picture on the front. 
and then on the back there is like a little synopsis and it does say cover art was copyrighted 215 by Richard Jones and the cover design was Elizabeth P. Peresi and Steve Ponzo so giving credit there and there's a picture of a scary shark kind of in shadow on the back here too it's dark blue and then the little summary says the following they were dead in the water stranded in the lone and war-torn pacific patrick and his younger brother teddy are finally homeward bound they've stowed away on one of the u.s navy's finest ships and now they just need to stay hidden but Japanese torpedoes rip their dream apart, and the sinking ship isn't the worst of it. Patrick and Teddy can handle hunger and dehydration as they float in the water and wait to be rescued. If they're smart, they can even deal with the madness that seems to plague their fellow survivors. No, the real danger circles beneath the surface, and it has teeth. So that's a preface, and then right underneath this, there's a little paragraph that says, based on the true events of the 1945 sinking of the USS Indianapolis, author P, um, see, author Michael P. Spradling tells a harrowing story of World War II. So I got this book thinking my boys would really enjoy reading this, and that it would give them a little bit of history, and I don't think they've ever even cracked the first cover here. I don't think they've ever looked at this. So I'm going to share it with you. We're going to listen to this and we're finally going to get to read this book. So opening up the first page, excuse me, I have a little drink here. It says Into the Killing Seas by Michael P. Spradling and there's a picture of the shark that was underneath the raft like he's going to come up and bite us and it says Scholastic Incorporated right under his fence. On the inside, you can see that the copyright date on the left-hand inside cover was 2015 by Michael P. Spradling, and Scholastic did publish this. And then on the inside cover, it says, To the captain and crew of the USS Indianapolis, a good ship and true. And that's between two lines with stars above and beneath that particular, that particular um, header. So now we're looking at the prologue, and I will read the prologue for us. And after the prologue, I'm probably going to take a break and go grab a snickerdoodle cookie. So, yeah, because, you know, seeing that shark kind of looking hungry makes me kind of hungry, so that's how it goes. <laughs> You'll get to enjoy the story with me and my snacking. Here we go. Prologue. He stands next to my hospital bed in a neat, clean, white uniform, so bright to look at him. The doctor tells me the relentless sun reflecting off the ocean might have permanently damaged my vision. Each night and every morning, a nurse puts drops in my eyes. It stings. There are rows upon rows of ribbons on his chest, but right now, I can't tell what color they are. Like everything else, since they pulled us out of the water, they all look gray to me. The doctor says, Patrick, this is Admiral something or other. I forget his name as soon as I hear it. And he wants to ask you some questions. He shakes me gently by the shoulder because I've closed my eyes again, pretending to be asleep. If I could, I'd like to sleep and never wake up. Not die, I don't mean that. Besides, Benny made me promise to live Benny made me an honorary Marine and always said Marines never go back on their word. But I'd like to sleep for a really long time, just to rest and dream, dream about anything else except what happened. I'd like to dream about going to watch the Detroit Tigers at Briggs Stadium and the smell of the fresh cut grass and the world's best ballpark hot dogs and playing baseball in the lot just down the street from most Holy Trinity Church and how everybody on each team always wanted to play first base, just like Hank Greenberg. I'd dream about dinner time at our house on Porter Street. We'd sit and pray, and then we'd eat. And Dad would tell us about how everyone had to look sharp at the plant that day because Mr. Ford had come through inspecting the production lines. And I'd dream about Christmas time and standing in line at Hudson's department store to see the windows all decorated up with lights and tinsel. 
I dream about those things, and I wouldn't wake up for a really long time because I for darn sure don't want to feel like answering some admiral's questions. What do you remember, son? He asked me anyway. Even though all the nurses say I'm supposed to be resting, I don't like him calling me son. I'm not his son. Everything, I remember everything, but I keep quiet. What can you tell me about that night, Patrick? He prods me again. Nothing, Admiral, sir. He wasn't there, not with us, in the water, fighting for our lives. He hasn't earned the right to ask these questions. And it's not because he doesn't deserve answers. It was a catastrophe. Benny used to tell me, we all got jobs to do, Pipsqueak. Yours is to mind your P's and Q's and to listen up when Benjamin Franklin Point Dexter, Private First Class, United States Marine Corps, tells you what's what, capiche? Half the time I never understood Benny, except when he told me things that really mattered. I don't know how long I'd been in the hospital. A couple of days, maybe, when I overheard one of the nurses and orderlies talking about what happened. She said it was the worst disaster in naval history. I'm sure this admiral has a big job to do, sorting it all out. Men died, and people were going to want to understand what happened, why it happened. But I'll bet right now all he really wants to know is what a 12-year-old kid from Detroit and his 10-year-old brother, who never speaks, were doing right in the middle of it. He won't get a word out of my little brother, Teddy. Right now, Teddy's in the bed across from me, buried in layer upon layer of crisp white bed sheets, even though the room is stifling. He's turned towards the wall and huddled up into a ball. He rarely moves. The only time he makes any noise is when he's asleep, and even then he only cries and whispers. No one will tell me where Benny is, not the doctor, not the nurses, not the orderlies, nobody. But the Admiral isn't interested in any of that. He just wants to know how two kids managed to stow aboard the USS Indianapolis. His back is straight, and his hands are hidden behind his back, and his pants are creased and his posture so rigid it makes me ache just looking at him. He isn't going away. So finally, I open my eyes and slowly sit up in my bed, and I look him in the eye. My back is sore, my hands are bloody and scarred, he won't get any answers out of me until he answers my questions. Where's Benny? I asked the Admiral once. He doesn't answer, just prods me again. Son, what do you remember about that night when the ship sank? For just a moment, I want to tell him I really do, but I don't want to get Benny into trouble. He got us on that ship. He thought he was doing us a favor. But that was before the ship went down and before the sharks came. You want answers, Mr. Admiral? Well, you'll have to ask the, me the right questions. The question isn't, what do I remember? It's, how will I ever forget? So that was the prologue and, <laughs> no pun intended, I'll bite. That's awesome. So I'm going to take a quick break here and I'm heading down for a quick cookie. And then maybe we will do chapter one. So hang in here with me. It'll be just a moment. Well, welcome back. I'm sorry for my little break there. I uh, had to make a cookie run. Cookie runs are, are, are important. So, all right. So let's dive into chapter one. We had our prologue where we were hearing about a young uh, man being asked to tell him about what had happened on the boat. And Patrick is the name of the young boy that is being talked to by the Admiral. And they're trying to find out what happened on the boat. And he's not wanting to talk. So continuing on, now we're going into chapter one called Stowaways. And Kind of a subchapter is 27 July 1945, and let's dive into chapter one. Benny's plan could be summed up like this. Put us inside a ventilated crate and load it on board the Indy. That was it. No secret identities, no trying to pass us off as really small sailors or Philippine princes or anything like that. Benny had cleverly modified a crate to make it comfortable as possible for us. 
There was plenty of room inside, and they padded the sides with blankets. He loaded it with food and water and even a bedpan. But he wasn't thinking only of our comfort. He stenciled ammunition on the side of it. Those swabby will bother if they think there's a chance they're going to blow their face off, sport. Sailors ain't tough like us Marines. About the most dangerous thing them white pants ever handles is a mop. That's what he'd said to us when he showed us how he planned to get us on board. I remember being miserable inside that wooden box, yet once we made it on board, there was no, which was no walk in the park, I felt more joy than I had felt in years. For the first time in a long time, it felt as if we might actually be reunited with our parents. Benny had packed enough food into the crate to last long enough to get us to Lady, and he brought us fresh water every few hours whenever he went off watch. But the hold was empty, and there was no one around. He stood watch so Teddy and I could get out to stretch our legs. He even snuck us into a nearby bathroom, which he called the head. But it was so hot and humid down there, we just spent most of the time sweating. Hang in there, little man, he said. A couple of more days, and we'll be in Lady. It's all going to work out. We just got to keep it together. Except for the unrelenting heat and humidity, I was fine. It was Teddy I was worried about. Ever since we first left Manila three and a half years ago, Teddy hadn't spoken, not a word. He hadn't liked living in the Philippines much, but everything that came after was more than he could handle. Mr. Henry Ford had sent my dad to Manila to help the Filipinos build an automotive factory. We'd been living there almost a year. Right before the Japanese attacked in 1941, our parents put us on a plane. They were trying to get us to safety, but the airfield in Manila till they could only whimper because there wasn't enough room on the plane for our parents. Only the two of us, and he couldn't imagine going without them. There was an elderly nun boarding the plane who was very sick, and she was flying to San Francisco. I remember my mother begging her to take Teddy and me with her. I remember it like it was yesterday. My oldest, Patrick, he's a good boy, sister. He's almost nine, and he can help take care of you if you're not feeling well, and Teddy will do whatever my Patrick says, my mother pleaded with her. We're from Detroit. We go to the Most Holy Trinity every Sunday. The nun's name was Sister Felicity, and she agreed to take us with her. Then I see my mother holding my face in her hands, demanding that I pay attention to her. You listen to me, Patrick, my sweet boy, she said. You and Teddy are going with Sister Felicity. This plane will eventually get you to San Francisco. We'll wire ahead and we'll have your Aunt Maggie pick you up there. You mind your manners and you listen to the sister and take care of Teddy and promise me you'll take care of Teddy. Can you do that for me? Your dad and I will be on the next plane right behind you. Do you understand me, Patrick? Yes, ma'am, I said to her. My dad knelt down in front of me and he put his hand on my shoulder. It's going to be okay, champ, he said. We'll be there before you know it. You mind your sister now, okay? I will, Dad, I promise, I said. My mother hugged me harder than she ever had in her life. Up until then, I'd never seen my dad with tears in his eyes. It was the last time I saw either of them. Because there was never another plane out of Manila. Before another one could take off, the Japanese invaded the Philippines, and I can't even think about what must have happened there. Sister Felicity was nice to us. She tried to distract us with stories and funny jokes as the plane bounced in the air on its way to Guam, where we had to stop to refuel. But the pilot wouldn't take off again because there were radio reports of Japanese planes in the area. Then we got the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the Philippines, so we stayed on Guam. But a few days later, December 11, 1941, was when the Japanese arrived. And they weren't coming here to have tea and cookies. They landed on Guam and gunned everyone down. I remember Sister Felicity pulling us into our beds, or pulling us from our beds, and telling us to run for the jungle. Run, boys, she said. We must run. They're coming. Hide in the jungle. Only there was no way Sister Felicity, as sick as she was, could ever make it to the jungle. We were barely awake as we stumbled out of the house we were staying in. She gave me a pillowcase full of bread and fruit and a jar of water to carry and we ran towards the underbrush and I could hear shooting and explosions in the streets. The sounds of roaring vehicles and the crackling of gunshots behind us and Sister Felicity telling us to run faster, boys, run! And there was a loud burst of gunfire 
and I heard Sister Felicity scream in agony, and then there was an explosion, and it was a Japanese hand grenade, and later I learned all too well what those grenades sounded like, and Sister Felicity didn't scream anymore. Up until then, her cries were the most horrible sounds I'd ever heard, and I was pretty sure she was dead, but I couldn't stop to think about it. Machine gun bullets plowed up the ground around us as we just made it to the tree line. Don't look back, Daddy, I yelled at him. Don't look back, keep running. And we ran through the jungle until a small band of Chalmuro found us. They were the natives of Guam, and they knew the jungle like nobody else. And they were kind to us. And they took us in, and for three years we survived with them. But we moved all the time, never staying in one place, sleeping in the dirt, living off the land, constantly on the lookout for Japanese patrols because they knew we were there, but they couldn't find us. When they got too close to us in the jungle, we'd drift back into a village and mix in with the locals until they gave up looking. Then we'd sneak out to the jungle again, and we learned how to stay invisible. After a couple of years of living like that, the Americans came back and hit Guam like a thunderbolt from Zeus, and that's how I imagined it. Before the war, my dad would always read to me at night, and I liked the stories from Greek mythology the best. And when the bombs started dropping and the ships started lobbing artillery at the island, this time it was the Japanese who did the screaming. The Americans retook the island, and I thought, this is it. This is what me and Teddy had been waiting for. But they wouldn't let us go back to Manila to look for our parents. They said it was because they were still fighting a war. An orphanage opened up, and a nun named Sister Mary Teresa came to run it. And that's where they stuck us, until the Navy could figure out what to do with us. And that's where we first met Benny, a United States Marine from the Bronx. And he had been part of the Guam invasion and was wounded in the fighting. And Benny talked and acted like a tough guy. But in truth, he was pretty kind-hearted. He liked to come by the orphanage while he was healing up from his injuries. And sometimes he brought us comic books and he didn't have time to read or a baseball to toss around. And he always had naughty jokes, lots of them. And Sister Mary Teresa would wag her crooked finger at him, salty language. And she could never stay mad at him. Nobody could, not for long anyway. There was just something about him. He had an easy way with people and there was always a smile on his face and he called everyone he met chum or sport or ace and he'd been in combat on all islands around the pacific and according to him he'd be kicking the well, i can't say the word or sister Mary teresa would really get mad but it rhymed with rap out of the japanese chasing their little imperial butts all the way back to tokyo is what he said by the time he snuck us aboard the ship benny had recovered from his wounds and had been training with a battalion of Marines for the invasion of Japan. That was the next step, everyone said. If they didn't surrender, the Americans were going to invade the Japanese homeland. Benny said he'd walk back into Hirohito's palace and snatch him up by the collar and teach him a thing or two. And Hirohito was the emperor of Japan, and by judging by the way Benny talked about him, he was clearly not one of Benny's favorite people. But me and Teddy were, and Benny looked out for us said we reminded him of the Stoop Boys back home in the Morris Heights section of the Bronx where he grew up. And I don't know how he did it, but eventually he talked to a sergeant who knew a sergeant that owed another sergeant a favor and got his orders changed. And now he was assigned to the Marine Detachment aboard the USS Annapolis. Always remember it's a sergeant that runs all your military units, Pipsqueak. Don't ever ask no officer if you need something. Your average officer couldn't find his hind end with both hands in the map. It was 1945, and the Indy was heading off the Philippines, back toward Manila, where our parents were, and Benny had a plan. Because, like he said, no bunch of white-suited, lame-brained, mop-driving swappies is going to keep two red-blooded American boys away from their parents. Oh, by all the saints in heaven, well, my name isn't Benjamin Franklin Point Extra Private for Class, United States Marine Corps. If the United States Navy is going to keep you two kids from finding your parents, what the heck were you over here fighting for? Only well, he didn't say heck. He said a bad worm that rhymed with smell. But I didn't care about that, because Benny played a pretty brilliant way and planned a pretty brilliant way for us to sneak aboard. And that's how we got on the ship. How we ended up packed in a crate with Teddy whimpering in the heat and me counting the minutes until we'd land in Lady. But Manila wasn't... It wasn't Manila, but at least... It was in the Philippines. 
Teddy didn't like being in the crate or the darkness or the hold or even leaving Guam down there in the hot, sweaty gloom, and I thought about it a lot. Maybe I should have left him at the orphanage with Sister Mary Teresa and gone to Manila by myself. Once I found Mom and Dad, I could bring him back to Guam and we'd all be together again. How will we get from Lady to Manila, Benny? I'd asked him when he told me his plan for our free ride across the U aboard the USS Indianapolis. Don't worry about that, chum, Benny said. We do it a step at a time. We get you to Lady first, and then we'll worry about getting you to Manila. Heck, if we even get caught in Lady, then we'll be easier for the Navy to ship you on to Manila than all the way back to Guam. With Benny's help, we got in the crate at the ammo depot at a twilight and on the 27th. He had it loaded onto the launch with the sailor at the helm, piloted out to the Indianapolis, which was bobbing gently an acre in the harbor. Everything went surprisingly smooth until the crate actually sat down on the ship's deck, and that's when the trouble started. All right, so now we dive into chapter two, titled, And the Belly of the Beast. This says, 28 July, 1945-29 July, 1945. Right, chapter 2. Trouble came in the form of another Marine named Sternkovitz. He was a sergeant, and right away I could tell by his voice that he didn't like Benny. Where are you going with that crate, Private? He barked, and the crane had lifted the crate onto the deck, and from there Benny had wrestled it onto a cart and he was wheeling it across the deck to stow it in a hold, below decks where he was intercepted by Sternkovitz. Sarge, all I know is the captain wants extra 20 millimeter ammo laid in. We're supposed to be doing a gunnery exercise when we arrive in Lady, I heard Benny say. The support boards that crisscrossed the crate on the outside had small spacers inserted between them and the wooden sides. It allowed plenty of air inside and just enough of a gap for me to peer out and see what was happening but you'd never notice them unless you were looking really close. And like Benny said, no swabby ever wanted to get close to a box full of what they thought was light ammunition. Sternkovitz was a short, squat, feral-tisted man with a thick brow and huge arms, and I could see his face well enough through the small crack. He had an unfriendly eyes. Even though he was clean-shaven, he had thick whiskers shadowing his face. Then why aren't you taking it to the armory with the rest of the ammo? If we get attacked by genuine Japanese planes along the way, won't it be handier in the armory? Sternkovich challenged him. Benny had a ready answer. I'm not sure, Sergeant, but I was taught to think like a Marine on my first day of basic training, so I suppose, I suspect there's a couple of reasons Captain ordered it taken to the hold. First, we're taking this here ship straight to Manila, and seeing as Hirohito and Tojo and all the rest of their buddies was just about done then, they probably ain't got any planes left to fly this far south. And if we see one, we might as well surrender. Second, if you read the order, Sarge, you'll see the part about the gunnery exercise. It says, live ammo training upon arrival. Now, I ain't never served on the Indy because I for sure ain't one of the corpse finest like you is, Sarge. But I hear Captain McVeigh is one heck of an officer for a mop driver and them got them robo tracks on his collar for a reason. Since we're going to shoot off the guns before we get to Lady, it probably means we're going to need some extra bullets which means, likely, this crate and probably several more like it's got to be stored in the hold because the armory is full of ammo we'll need if the ship is actually attacked. But I'm only a private, not a sergeant like you, so I'm just guessing. Sternkvitz was quiet for a moment, and he knew he'd been insulted by Benny, but he wasn't quite clever enough to figure out how. He locked his hands together, cracked his knuckles, and decided to get tough. You trying to get smart with me, private? Stormcovitz scowled, walking right up to Benny and sticking his nose in his face. This sergeant looked like a hard man, mean as a snake, almost like he wanted a fight. I hoped he wouldn't hurt Benny. I'd seen a lot of fights between sailors and marines on Guam after the Americans retook the island, and they could beat each other up pretty bad. Sister Marie Teresa said it was because they couldn't hold their liquor. She said they'd been fighting their way through the Pacific and it built up a lot of stress. And they are men, after all, she'd say, and roll her eyes, as if that explained everything. No, Sarge, I'm already smart, Benny said. I'm just relaying the captain's orders, is all. But if you have a problem with it, I'd be more than happy to run up to the bridge and ask him where he wants me to park this here crate. I can stash it anywhere, the galley, the gun deck, quarters, wherever you want it, Sarge, just say the word. Maybe I should inspect the contents of that crate. Make sure you aren't smuggling hooch or contraband on board a U.S. Navy vessel. 
be my guest, Sarge. I'm sure it won't happen again, and I'm sure the captain won't mind. Strunkovitz paused, confused. I was sweating now, and not because of the heat and humidity. If Strunkovitz found us in the crate, he would turn us in, and Benny would be in a lot of trouble. Probably they'd lock him up in the brig. At the orphanage, Benny had told us he'd spent a fair amount of time in the brig himself. What isn't happening? The captain, what are you talking about, Poindexter, he demanded. And then he called Benny a bad name. And he was lucky Sister Mary Teresa wasn't around. I'm just saying I heard it from Gunny Franklin in the ammo depot on Guam that the captain is in a big hurry to get underway. And apparently there's a lot of new crew coming on board and they're green. And he wants to get in some gunnery training before we put in that lady. And the word is the Indies going straight to Japan after the Philippines. Going to sew right up to Hirohito's palace and turn it into an outhouse. So I got this crate and three more like it. I got to get stowed in the hoe. You want to inspect them? Be my guest. I'll just wait until you're done. I could use a smoke. On second thought, I most likely ain't gonna smoke because I've been some. I've seen some real bad things happen when someone forgets and grabs a cigarette around live ammo. All I ask, all I ask is you tell the captain why we were late getting the extra ammo stowed away. Cause I don't want to get in no trouble, Sarge. And Benny hooked his thumbs in the web belt of his khaki pants, waiting for the slow-witted sergeant to make up his mind. Strunkovitz stood there rubbing his chin with his ham-sized hand, and finally he snarled at Benny. Get moving, private, and stand on my hair. I mean this whole voyage. I don't like you, Poindexter, you pig-faced sack of dung. You look at me even cross-eyed, and I'll have you thrown in the big. You hear me, Marine? Loud and clear, Sergeant. Wouldn't have it any other way, Benny said, and cheerfully as he grabbed the cart handle and pulled it across the deck. Strunkovitz must have moved off to torment someone else because I could no longer see him. Guy couldn't spell cat if you spotted him the C and the T, Benny whispered to us in the crate. And what a horrible poker player. Owes me three hundred bucks. Thinks I'll forget. Forget about it because of those stripes on his sleeves. But Benny Point Dexter, Private First Class, United States Marine Corps, don't forget nothing. You okay in there, Petty Boy? What's the signal? I rapped on the lid of the crate with my knuckles rapidly twice, and then a few beats later, that was our secret sign, in case Benny ever came to check on us, but somebody else was in the hold. He'd knock and let us know that it was safe to come out. But don't worry about anybody coming down to the hold, and don't hang around long. It's too dang hot, and seeing how this crate is marked, ain't nobody going to touch it unless they absolutely have to. Them swabbies don't know which end of a gun to point at the enemy anyway. That's all they can do just to steer clear of this bucket of bolts. We made it safely to the hold, and that's where we stayed, following Benny's instructions. He brought us fresh water three or four times the first day, and whenever he wasn't on duty. It was unbelievably hot and humid, and there were times I thought we'd made a horrible mistake, that we'd never be able to stand the heat another minute, that we'd have to crawl out of the crate where someone would discover us, sweat soaked through our clothes. The air was still emotionless in the hold. At times, Teddy would curl up in the ball and whimper, and I'd have to scurry across the crate and sit next to him, whispering and pleading with him to be quiet so no one would hear us. I'm real sorry about the weather, boys, but we're right smack dab on the equator, and that old sun ain't going to cool off any time soon, but a couple of more days and we'll be there. You'll see, he said once when he brought us water. Benny always had something positive to say. He did his best to keep our spirits up. At night, it was even worse. The temperature dropped, but the humidity rose, and we sweated even more. To make it even more unbearable, the sea grew rougher after sundown, and the ship rocked to and fro in the waves. And I thought I was going to puke several times. Teddy actually did, twice. But I couldn't let him out of the crate. If he threw up on deck, someone might discover it. The crate was only about six feet by six feet. Crate was only about six feet by six feet by four feet, and the smell was awful. I knew he couldn't help it. He was scared. I was scared too. But honestly, part of me was getting tired of always taking care of him. He wouldn't talk, not since we left Manila, and he cried all the time. And when he didn't cry, he moaned. I had to drag him everywhere, force him to eat even when he wasn't hungry, and soothe the nightmares that filled his head every evening. Mom made me promise to take care of him. Benny always told me Marines don't ever break a promise, and he made me an honorary Marine. Once on Guam, when Benny was visiting the orphanage, he heard me snap at Teddy after Teddy threw the baseball through the window. He was always messing up and breaking things, and I guess he'd had enough that day. Benny took me aside, and he gave me one of his elixirs. 
Hey, champ, he said. He's up on the guy. The little brother needs a big brother to watch out for him. Keep him on the straight and narrow, because let me tell you something, he ain't always going to be this little. Before you know it, you're going to be two full-grown men, and someday you might find yourself in a scrap, and who's going to look out for you? Who's going to have your back? It ain't going to be the pipsqueak you think of as little Teddy right now. It'll be Big Teddy, and when he's full-grown, he ain't never going to forget how his older brother took care of him in the absolute worst time of his life. And he's going to say to the whole world, anybody who wants a piece of my brother is going to have to come through me. And trust me, sport, you're going to be grateful he's there backing you up. Poor little Teddy's just having a tough time now. You've got to stick by him. Marines stick together. We'll never leave no man behind. I tried not to be mad at Teddy, but it was so hard sometimes with him whining and whimpering and never talking and puking his guts out. I don't know why he never spoke. Teddy was always a little nervous and jerky back in Detroit, even back in Detroit. He was just a little over six years old when we left Mom and Dad in the Philippines. I guess somewhere deep inside he must have realized what was happening, that we might not see them again, and he couldn't take the thought of it. Sister Mary Teresa said Teddy was just in there, that he just retreated way down deep inside of himself. Anyway, that day after Benny told me to ease up on Teddy, I tried. But it was hard. Now the ship was rising and dipping like the Thunderbolt, a roller coaster on the Bobo Island amusement park back home. Up and down the motion made me feel like I was going to lose it myself. Just when I thought I couldn't take it anymore, I heard Benny rap on the lid of the crate. Two quick knocks, then a slow one. It was a signal that said all was clear to come out of the crate. But before he could lift the lid off, a light filled the hold bursting through the small air vents in the sides, and I heard Sergeant Stinkovitz's voice. What are you doing down here, Point Dexter? He said. Just taking a break is all. That's all. And making sure I sit out of your way, like you ordered, Benny said. Uh-huh. Why don't you tell me what you got in that crate there, Private? Told you, Sergeant. There ain't nothing in these crates but shells from them 20s. You want to see? I don't mind. Benny never got to finish his sentence. He was cut off by the loudest explosion ever heard. That was the end of chapter two. Okay, so just a minute here, kind of breaking in our story. So they keep saying that Benny is from Detroit, but he is written like he is from Texas. So I am so sorry if I'm kind of throwing you with that. Um, I'm not sure how to make Benny sound like he's from the Bronx, because he is written like he is from the South. So... Um, sorry about that, so just hang in there with me. And some of the dialogue for um, Patrick is also more written southern than, than northern to me. So if this is kind of throwing you, I'm sorry it's throwing me a little bit too. All right, so we shall continue, and I'll be posting Chapter 3 in just a moment. Well, hello, and welcome back. And we are now diving into chapter three, which is titled Chaos. All right, here we go. The noise thundered like the very middle of the ship was begging for its life. Me and Teddy were jerked off our feet and our heads banged into each other inside the crate. I sat up stunned, my skull aching, and I had to clap my hand over Teddy's mouth to make sure he didn't cry out. Not when Benny just distracted that bully. But it probably wouldn't have mattered anyway. My ears buzzed and it was hard to hear. And the lights went out and Sergeant Stenkovich shouted, We're under attack! Battle stations! He kept shouting it over and over as he ran from the hold and his voice faded. A few seconds later, another explosion staggered the great vessel. Teddy and I were slammed hard against the side of the crate. All right, Patrick, Teddy, listen up. You boys stay right there. I gotta go find out what's happened. He might have hit a mine. A boiler in the engine room could have blown, or we could be under attack. I doubt it, but your Japanese Imperial Navy is sneaky by nature, and you never know. We left Guam without a destroyer escort, so it could be a sub. Either way, I'll find out what's going on, and I'll come back for you. I promise. Do you hear me? I was terrified, and I couldn't think of anything to do except knock on the lid of the crate. No, let me hear you say it, Patty boy. You'll say, you'll stay here. I'll come back. If for some reason I don't, if you think it's going to be bad, you get out and you get it topside and you turn yourself into the first officer you see. Got it? I was petrified. 
I felt like Teddy. I couldn't speak. Patrick James O'Donnell, you got it, Benny yelled. Answer me. I got it. I got it, Benny. Please don't leave us. Benny, Benny, please. I ain't leaving you, I promise. Benjamin Franklin, Point Dexter, private class, first class. Private first class, United States Marine Corps, don't break a promise. I'm just doing a little recon is all. I wanted to believe him, to tell him I trusted him. But I couldn't focus on what he was saying. There was too much noise, and the explosion had left me disoriented and woozy. Everyone aboard that ship was shouting and screaming, and I could hear them even while, even though we were way down in the hold. And while I didn't hear Benny leave, I knew he was no longer there. Teddy curled up in a ball in the corner and started making the uh, uh, uh noise he always made when he was terrified, and I didn't know how long Benny had been gone but it seemed like it was quite a while, and I couldn't stand it any longer, and I pushed the lid of the crate up and peered outside, and it was hard to see in the dark, but Benny had given us a flashlight, and I flipped it on, and there was smoke pouring into the hold, and pipes had burst, and water was shooting everywhere, and the floor of the hold was filling with water, and most of the crates and their other cargo had rolled all over the floor like dice, and smoke filled the air, making it harder to see by the second. And the ship lurched suddenly it threw me off balance but this time i stood up and pushed the lid of the crate all the way off grabbed a canteen of water and clipped it to my belt and i had to see what was going on what we'd gotten ourselves into and i could hear men shouting everywhere above us their voices sounded scared and desperate like the ship was in serious trouble and benny still hadn't returned if something happened to him well, well i didn't want to think about it I was sure what, I wasn't sure what we'd do without him. We'd been banking on his plan, and without him, nothing made sense. I made my wiped my eyes trying to clear them, and my fingers came away wet, and I hadn't realized I was crying. I had counted on Benny. What if he'd been hurt? What do I do now? Teddy yanked on my arm. He was hysterical, wailing and screaming like a banshee, and it brought me back to the present. I knew I couldn't just sit there and wait any longer. Come on, Teddy, I said. We gotta get out of here. I coughed because the smoke was growing thicker, and Teddy wouldn't move from the crate. Ha, 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 he cried, and I tried to grab him, but he wiggled away from me, and he was shaking, and when I held my hand out to him, I realized that I was too. Teddy, quit screwing around, I shouted at him. We need to get Patrick, I heard Benny shout. He'd come back, just like he promised, but when I turned around to face him, I nearly fainted. It wasn't the Benny I recognized. His face and his hands were horribly burned, and there were strips of skin hanging from his cheeks and chin, and his hands were curled into ugly, blackened masses. Benny, I cried, what happened? You're hurt. Just a scratch, Sporty croaked. Something was wrong with his voice. He sounded like he'd swallowed broken glass. What do we do, Benny? I asked, and Teddy stood next to me, terrified, clutching at my arm. With each passing second, the smoke filled the hole hold grew thicker. Benny, I prodded him, tell us what to do. We got a, we got, he sank to his knees. Thunderous groaning sounds of metal bending and twisting roared through the air and the ship lurched to the side again and Teddy and I nearly crashed into Benny, trying to keep our feet. Another pipe burst and water spurted everywhere soaking us. Teddy and I hacked as the smoke filled our lungs. We could barely see it was almost impossible to breathe. All right, boys, Benny said, wheezing. Get down on your hands and knees. We're going to make our way up to the deck. Come on now. you got to get down low where the air is clearer. I did as he instructed and pulled Teddy down beside me. He started crawling towards the main hatch to the hold. Benny crept along behind us. He groaned in agony with every movement he made, but that didn't stop him from encouraging us. Keep going, boys. Stay low. I glanced over my shoulder. Crawling was killing Benny. He couldn't use his hands very well, and with every grimace, every jerky inch of progress, I could tell he was in horrible pain. I scrambled back to help, but he wouldn't let me lay a finger on him. Don't you worry about me, Pipsqueak, he said. You and Teddy, get to that hatch and climb up to the deck. That's an order. Do you hear me, Marine? Marine, stick together, I told him, ignoring his command. Put your hands on, arms on my back. No, no, I can do it. I'll be right behind you, Patty. Swear it. Ben's force of will was staggering as he propelled himself forward. He groaned with every movement, 
but slowly we made our way through the dense cloud of smoke and the rising water that covered the floor until we reached the entrance to the hold. Good thing for us Denkovitz didn't dog this hatch or we'd be stuck, Benny said, and I knew from listening to the sailors and the marines back on Guam that dogging the hatch meant that the latch was shut and sealed tight. Sometimes when ships were hit by enemy fire, the hatches on the entire ship were closed to prevent air from escaping. It helped the vessel stay afloat longer, and sometimes the hatches were sealed with men still inside. Teddy reached the entrance to the hold first, and that passageway outside was smokier and even louder with the noise of running, shouting men. He turned around, staring at me, his eyes wild with fright. Okay, Benny croaked. We're going to go up to the deck, but careful, because there are fires everywhere. And boys, you don't want to end up looking fried like old Benny here, right? Let's go. Benny staggered to his feet, and we began climbing the steps. On every level of the ship, we saw dozens of horribly wounded men crying and begging for help. Some were trapped beneath wreckage, unable to move. Able-bodied soldiers and marines buzzed about trying to free them. Some of those men were hurt and bleeding themselves, but they were doing everything they could to assist their shipmates. I saw one sailor pick up another off the deck and throw him across his shoulder. The wounded seamen screamed in agony, but the sailor yelled at him, Steady, buddy, steady, boy. The sailor said, I got you. I'm getting you topside, and the dock will fix you right up. His friend didn't hear him because he'd passed out. Everyone who'd been in the bowels of the ship before the explosions were headed upwards. The ladders and passageways grew crowded. Every man desperate to reach the main deck. And as we climbed, I saw a huge gaping hole in the bulkhead amidships. How it had it gotten there? It was gigantic. The ship must have been torpedoed. I couldn't believe a boiler explosion would tear through steel quite like that. But I didn't have time to think about it too carefully. We had to keep moving. There were times I was certain Benny wasn't going to make it. He would climb a ways, then stop, and groan in agony. His cheeks were burned so badly I could see the bones sticking right up through the skin, and his fingers were curled into useless charred stumps. He had to hook the rungs on the ladder with his wrists and hold on. A little further now. We're almost there, he said, breathing hard. Then we'll find out what's going on. I'm sure they've already radioed for help, and rescue ships are on their way. In the meantime, if we've got to abandon ship, we'll find us a life raft. It'll be fine, boys. You'll see. But it wasn't fine. And when we finally reached the main deck, we stepped directly into an inferno. We thought we'd get a little relief from the smoke, now that we were in the open, but the air was still heavy with it. It burned my throat and made my eyes sting. I could see better now. Everything was on fire, and I didn't know if it was possible for still to burn, but the deck of the ship was melting right in front of us. The worst part was the scalded, broken seamen who gathered on the deck. Many of them were horribly injured. They screamed in agony, and those who weren't tried to outyell their suffering comrades. I heard them shouting at the wounded to calm down, that everything would be all right. The medics are going to be here soon. It had to be torpedoes, Benny said. Ain't no boiler or mine would have done this much damage. Lousy, stinking. He went on to call the Japanese all kinds of names, and Sister Mary Teresa would have blushed. Teddy was holding on to my arm, squeezing it so hard it hurt. Benny didn't look like he was going to live through the next five minutes. The smoke was thickening and the fire was going closer and we tried to back up to get free of the flames and smoke, but the deck was crowded with bodies at our feet and the wounded man staggering between them, wailing for help as they couldn't seem to find any. There was no place for us to go. Every couple of seconds more men appeared on deck carrying injured shipmates. They'd laid them gently on the deck, and someone would try to perform first aid on them. I think it was too late for many of them. I'd seen a lot of dead bodies on Guam. Tomorrow killed many Japanese soldiers who did their own share of killing. I knew what a dead person looked like. Right then, I understood a lot of the men laying on the Indianapolis's deck were already gone. Benny realized what we were seeing and sought to shield us from it. Don't look, boys. Don't, don't look at it. Don't look at nothing. We're going to make our way to the stern. If we've got our abandoned ship, we'll get us a raft and go off the ship's aft. Do you understand me? But I wasn't paying attention to Benny. 
I was watching the ship fall apart in front of my eyes. I witnessed incredible bravery as sailors and marines did whatever they could to save the Indianapolis and each other. Listen, Pipsqueak, Benny's words were cut off as the ship listed sharply. It tilted so severely that it knocked us off our feet, and we careened across the deck. The wounded screamed as they slid along the still surface. Body after body plummeted over the side, splashing into the ocean. Hang on! Grab something! Anything! Hold on, boys! Benny shouted. Benny managed to wrap his arm around a pipe at the elbow to stop himself from tumbling across the deck. But Teddy and I weren't quick enough and slid towards the side of the ship. I reached out, grabbing my brother by the ankle. With my free hand, I dug my fingernails into the deck, looking for anything I could hold on to. I glanced up and saw to my horror that we were only a few feet from the edge, sliding faster with every second. And in the blink of an eye, Teddy slipped over the side. So, hi there. So we just finished chapter three with Teddy sliding into the sea where we are um, enjoying, of course, this book called Into the Killing Seas. And it is a young adult read, very much a young adult read. <laughs> and thank you for hanging in here with me uh, through this story. We have probably gone through about the first quarter of this book. So there are a few more chapters to go. I'm going to try to knock these out in maybe uh, groups of three or four chapters until we're done with this book. But I'm hoping you're enjoying it. Um, it's all, for me, kind of highly improbable that these kids would sneak aboard a Navy ship. But hey, it's the 1940s and before computer technology, so, so maybe it's possible. Who knows? But outside of it, it's, it's entertaining. And... More than that, I'm getting to spend some time with you doing this audio read. So I hope you're enjoying it. And with this, I'm going to sign off for now. And I will be installing my next podcast for you probably tomorrow evening, um, tomorrow night. So we will pick up the next three chapters tomorrow. So have a really nice rest of your day or evening or night. And thank you for spending time with me in my podcast of the stories. And I think after this one, we might go back to another short fairy tale. I have a stack of books here that I think we can enjoy together. And have a nice, have a nice time. We'll see you again. Thanks. Bye.